Welcome to the City of Refuge podcast, where our mission is to equip a diverse community of Christ followers to make him known. Well, good morning, City of Refuge. Um, my name's Brandon Freemian, and um, as that mentioned, I am the pastoral candidate for the church. So, originally, we were going to be continuing with our Servant King series, going through Mark 10 this morning. But uh, I felt led to go in a different direction. So we're instead going to be looking at Psalm 16. So if you have your Bibles, you would go ahead and turn there. But I did want to say um, that was a hard decision because Mark 10 has a lot of really important things that Jesus teaches on. In Mark 10, he preaches on and teaches on marriage and divorce. He teaches on wealth and how wealth should affect our following of him. He teaches on what it means to be greatest and who is the greatest, which has some important applications for what we've been talking about this year in the realm of service. So um, as a pastoral candidate, I think that means I get to assign homework now. So your homework for the week, I want to ask you if you would please read Mark 10 uh, on your own time, take some time and meditate on those teachings of Jesus, because I think they are really important. But uh, where I wanted to focus this morning, so we've talked about this theme that we have of serving with joy in our place of calling and giftedness. And I really want to focus in on that concept of joy. Because also, as Matt mentioned, this has been a heavy season for our church. The last three months, there's a lot of things we can look back on with joy and thanksgiving that he's done. A lot of moments where we have seen him work, and also times where we have just been able to enjoy coming back together as a community. But there have also been some really, really heavy, hard things and some places of loss for our church, where we have been entering into sorrow and grief appropriately. And I was thinking back to the beginning of the year. At the beginning of the year, for those of you who are new, we have what's called our Solemn Assembly which is where we gather together and we pray over our year and and pray about what God would have for us and what we're hoping to see him do. One of the central things we prayed for at that solemn assembly was that God would bring joy to our church. And if you will be okay with me having a moment of weakness, I wrestled with that a little bit this week of asking God why. Why, God, when we prayed for joy, does it seem like that there has been so much continued turmoil in the world? Why has there seemed to be so many things that have come up that have been sorrowful and grieving in our congregation? And I was just wrestling with God this week about that. And as I think he sometimes does in those moments, he was gently corrective about what joy is. And where it comes from. And so I want to spend some time today talking about that. Where does joy come from? Where are we supposed to look for joy? Particularly, where are we supposed to look for joy when we are encountering seasons of grief, sorrow, and uncertainty? So to do that, um, I'd like to look at Psalm 16. So I'm going to read that for us now. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. 
I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. That has been where my meditation has been this week. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Because in some ways, it is the most straightforward answer we could give to the question of how do we go about experiencing joy? Where are we supposed to look for joy? According to Psalm 16, the answer to that question is, is, In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And I think that resonates with what we see in the Bible and particularly resonates with what we see in the scriptures about how God meets people when they are experiencing suffering. I was reminded of the story of Elijah in the desert. Right, where after Elijah has this amazing encounter with the prophets of Baal and they call down fire from heaven and the people seem to be turning, but then Jezebel is coming after Elijah and he goes out in the desert in absolute despair. And then God sends angels there to minister with them. They beat him and put him to sleep. And then he goes on this long walk through the desert And then they come to the cave and there's the fire and the whirlwind that God is not there. But then God meets him in this still, small voice. And he doesn't answer all of Elijah's questions, but he answers him with his presence. And I think you see the same thing in Job, right? You have Job who experiences tremendous loss and then receives a great deal of bad advice from his friends that goes on for chapter after chapter after chapter. And then finally, at the end, God shows up. And again, he does not answer all of Job's questions. In fact, his presence is a little confrontational in that moment. But nonetheless, he answers Job and his suffering with his presence. I thought back to a couple weeks ago when we looked at Isaiah 9 this prophecy that those who walk in darkness have seen a great light. And what was that light going to be? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. This prophecy 
that the way God was going to encounter the suffering of his people and the suffering of the world was through the most visible act of presence that we see in the scripture, which is the incarnation of Jesus, the Emmanuel, the God with us. Right? Over and over and over again, we see God meeting people in the midst of their grief and their sorrow through the work of his presence. And why is that? Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And in the same way, I think whether we are in a time where things are going well or we things are going hard and awful that we have to say that our joy is ultimately found by drawing close to God. Because according to what this says, that is where fullness of joy is actually found regardless of the circumstances. And there were two things that I was thinking about that I think are really important aspects of that. One is that that means that fundamentally joy is not something that we will to happen. It's not something that we fundamentally have control over. It is a fruit of something else. And that resonates, that's exactly how Paul talks about it, right? When Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, right, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Joy being one of these things that is a fruit of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that fits. Because if the psalmist of right and the fullness of joy is in his presence and the Holy Spirit is his spirit poured out in us, then it would make sense that the fruit of that spirit being in us, that one of those things would be joy. But that means that it is a work of God. It is something that we don't will into our lives. It is something that is a fruit of us drawing near to God. And this is very good news. Because ultimately it means that our joy is tied to God being near. It's an objective reality of something that God does that is unshakable and unchangeable as God himself. Now, I think there are things that sometimes interrupt our experience of closeness with God that we're going to talk about in a minute. But nonetheless, there is an aspect of our joy that is never far away because it is said that the Holy Spirit is a seal in us. Right? If we have put our faith in Christ, God is near. That is something that he has done in us. There is an unshakable objective reality there of something God does that means that it's not based on us. And I don't know about you, but in a world where so much can sometimes be hard and shake my emotional state, the fact that there is something there that is in the hands of God in terms of his closeness to us and his nearness to us is a great comfort to me. But that is not to say that there isn't an aspect of this where our choices affect our experience of God's presence. That there is a way that we can draw near to God, and that's actually something you see in a lot of different places in the scriptures where there is this call to draw near to God. James 4.8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Hebrews 10, 21 and 22, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
Like there is this indication in Scripture that while we don't ever can't kick the Holy Spirit out, He's there with us, that sin and our own turning away can absolutely disrupt our experience of the nearness of God. And so I think also be a barrier to joy and that also the, that in our times where we are needing joy, that drawing near to God is the action that we should take to pursue joy. We don't pursue joy directly. We pursue joy by pursuing the one who is the fullness of joy with his presence. And I think that's what you see the psalmist doing in Psalm 16. Everything leading up to this declaration that in your presence is the fullness of joy are these acts of the psalmist drawing near to God. So, for instance, verse 2. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. He looks at his life and declares that trust that everything good that is in his life, everything good that he experienced ultimately is because of and only good because it is connected to God. In verses 3 and 4, which actually is a pretty difficult verse to translate. But fundamentally what's going on here is that he is saying, there are all of these idols around. There are all of these things that I could turn to right now. There are all of these people around me who are turning to other things, who are turning to other gods, and I will have none of that because I am going to turn to the true God. Why? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. All of these other things that we might turn to, they are not going to be the things that ultimately are the fullness of joy. They are ultimately not the things that are my source of good. And so I am going to turn away from all of those things and seek after him. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I'd say this is the other place I've been meditating a lot this week. And this is a beautiful and important image, but it needs a little bit of background to understand what he's talking about. So, in the Old Testament, when Israel was coming into the promised land, God essentially divvied up the land amongst all of the different tribes. And then all of that land was then divvied up among the different families. And, and that was important. At the time, owning land, being able to cultivate the land, this was their source of wealth. This was their source of provision. And this would also be an inheritance. This is sort of the guarantee not just of your provision, but also the provision of your children. And so the idea being that what God had allocated to them would then be passed down from generation to generation to generation. But there was one tribe that didn't get an allocation of land. It was the Levites. The Levites were given a couple cities, but they did not have the same allocation of land that the other tribes had. And a big reason for that is because the Levites had a particular role in the midst of the, the, the people. They were supposed to be serving as the, the priests. And the psalmist here is kind of taking a similar posture. 
he's saying that sort of regardless of what is happening physically in my life, my allotment, what God has set aside for me, the, the boundaries that he has set for me, isn't about physical land. It's about the Lord himself. He's saying, what has been allotted to me, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. The Lord is the one who is going to determine my lot in life. And because the Lord is near, these lines, these boundaries, the things that God has set up as what is mine has fallen in very good places. Not because it has generated him a lot of wealth or a lot of land, but because the Lord himself is what he has gotten. It is a declaration of how good God's presence is, so much so that this is his lot in life. This is what he wants. My portion is the Lord. He will be what I value as my treasure. He will be my source of provision. He is what I want to see passed down from generation to generation to generation. It is not my land. It is the Lord himself that is my portion and my cup. This is a declaration of, again, seeking to be near to God and having God as the principal thing that we are seeking and that we see as what is most valuable. And why would we do that? Because fullness of joy is found in his presence. And then he goes on in... Verse 9 and 10, he says, Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. This is a fascinating verse because we have here back in Psalms what is the seed of the hope that we're going to see in its fullness in the New Testament. There's only hints of it in the Old Testament of this reality of eternity and this reality of resurrection as our hope. But we see it here. There's this, this, like, this sense that the psalmist has that God is not going to abandon me to death. God is not going to abandon me to corruption, which later on we're going to see he was exactly right. Right? Because of the work of Jesus, there is now the hope of resurrection. And there is now the hope that our eternity is not going to be one of corruption and decomposing, but it is going to be a hope of eternity with God. And what is the primary thing about that? You go to Revelation 21. What does God say? Now these are my people and I will be their God What is most significant about this eternity, what is most significant about this heaven is presence. Right, Because in his presence is the fullness of joy. And so in eternity, when that presence is perfected and our experience of that presence is completely perfected, that is when we will know joy like we have never known before. Not because of what the pavement is made out of or what kind of house we're in, but because we are now fully in God's presence. And that is where fullness of joy dwells. Praise be to God. So there is something here, a call to draw near to God. And I don't think that this understanding of joy is contrary to being in a place of grief and lament. In fact, I think it's complementary to it. 
Because even here in Psalm 16, we get the sense that not all is right. Right? He starts out crying out to God, preserve me. And throughout many of the Psalms, we see this, this crying out to God in lament of just bringing to God the places where things are hard and things are broken. Because Psalm 16 does not exist in a vacuum. The other Psalms do not exist in a vacuum where it's some sort of you know, magical world that has an overly rosy view of, of what they're going to face. No, it's, it's exactly the same world we live in that the psalmist is writing in. A world where at times we seem surrounded by sorrow. A world where there is sin, there is death, there is brokenness, there is war, there is tribulation. This is the environment in which Psalm 16 is being written. But I think in the midst of experience those things, we do have a choice. Because there is a, a path where we distance ourselves from God in response to grief and sorrow. There is a path where we pull away from him. There is a path where we seek to find comfort in other things. That we try and find joy in other places in response to that suffering. But there is another path where we seek to draw near to God in the midst of it. Seek to be close to his presence, even in the midst sometimes, just as we see with Job and with Elijah, of not understanding yet choosing still to draw near. While they're still questioning, in the Psalms of Lament, you see them still questioning, asking God why, asking God how long, expressing this is sorrow, but they're seeking him. They're pressing into him, they're drawing near to him in the midst of what they're going through. They're not pulling away. Why? Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So the process of grief, the process of lament, if we are seeking God in the midst of it, is part of that drawing near. And that's why I don't think there is anything between pursuing joy and and grief and lament. They're complementary, provided we are doing that lamenting and that grieving, pursuing the presence of God. When I was thinking about what this would look like for a church. Uh, I was encouraged by some of the epistles in the New Testament because many of them were written to churches that were in the midst of suffering, that were in the midst of undergoing persecution, hard times, along with the just normal day-to-day things that I'm sure that they were facing. And many of the the New Testament writers were writing to these churches seeking to encourage them in the midst of that. And one of the ones that stood out to me was in James. And in James, he starts his letter by saying to them, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's first pointing to this reality that God uses these things in order to perfect us and complete us, and that in itself is a source of joy. But I was also thinking about what does that steadfastness mean that is so valuable? I think part of what it means for us to be steadfast when we face trial, when we suffer loss, is that our faith does not waver. 
we continue in the midst of those things to make the kinds of declarations that the psalmist makes in 16. We continue to declare our trust that all of our good comes from God. We continue to see the, the Lord as our portion as, and as our cup. And that steadfastness is such that when we face those things, we draw near rather than pulling away. And I think that's why James, when he's talking to the church about how they can count what they're going through as joy, it's yes, God's going to use this for steadfastness, but a result of this steadfastness is that you will be drawing near to God. And that is where the fullness of joy is found. Now, I don't know what the weeks and months ahead have for our church. And I'm still praying for joy for our church. But I would say I am praying for it differently. What I'm praying for, regardless of the circumstances we face, good or hard, is that we would experience the fullness of joy that comes from collectively drawing near to the presence of God. That is how I think we should pray for joy. And I'd like to do that now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we believe that in your presence is the fullness of joy. Lord, whether we are in a time of celebration or a time of lament, I pray that we collectively, as a church and individually, would be seeking to draw near to you. Lord, you are our chosen portion and our cup. The lines have fallen for us in pleasant places, and we do have a beautiful inheritance because that inheritance is your presence. I pray, God, that we would look for joy there. That we would not look for joy in other places. May we draw near to you. All these things I pray in your precious and holy name. Amen. Brandon, could I ask you a couple questions real quick? Put you on the spot. Um, and I'm not sure if others are kind of processing this, but one thing that kept coming to me was this question about um, the difference between fun and joy. Mm -hmm. And how do we separate it in, in our world? If you're in pain, then there's all this fun that you should be attracted to. And, of course, there's plenty of folks that are willing to sell that to us. How do we separate that? How do we, um, I don't know, prepare for that kind of battle? Any thoughts about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one, I don't think that, that joy and fun are necessarily opposed to one another. But I do think that there is a difference between pursuing joy and pursuing fun. Because a lot of fun actually pulls us away from drawing near to God. And I think that one of the big things that can be the temptation when we are facing 
suffering or difficulty of any time is that of just pursuing distraction. Mm. Pursuing something that keeps our mind off of it as opposed to that which actually would be drawing us near to God.